Now I ask if you will to turn to your Bibles again, Ephesians the fourth chapter, verses 7 through 16, we need to pick up the reading again at verse 1. And uh, let me explain for some of you who may be with us for the first time that our commitment is to expository preaching. We, generally speaking, take a book of the Bible and we work our way through it. This helps us to see the unity of the Bible, to understand the total logic of a book in which we are saturating ourselves. It keeps the minister from simply preaching a text that he might want to preach, that I'm, hey, what's next is next. And we're trying to unfold the logic of the book itself. So you will, you will benefit more if you have the Bible open in front of you because we will regularly reference the text because the authority is in the text. And also, if you are with us, chapter 4 turns from the pre- pre- predominantly doctrinal portion of the book to the applicatory portion of the book of Ephesians. And we are in verses in the first 16 verses of chapter 4. And this is the third sermon on the first 16 verses because it's very dense. And so we are working our way through these 16 verses and uh, we'll be focused upon some themes that will finish these first 16 verses for us and allow us to turn to verse 17 and following next week, Lord willing. Let's pray before reading. We ask, Father, that as we now turn to your word, that you will help us to understand its truth, that especially the truth regarding word gifts that you have given to your church, the proclamation of Holy Scripture, will be predominant in our minds and in our hearts. And we ask that you will enable your ministers to fulfill that call faithfully here. We ask that you will help us, each of us, as believers in Christ, to submit our hearts constantly to the teaching of your holy word, the Bible. Enable this minister to to preach your word because he has nothing of himself. It is all dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read again, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Ephesians through the 16th verse. This is the word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, forbearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head in Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, you may remember that last week I quoted John Calvin, who said that the chief sinew by which the church is held together in one body is the ministry of the Word. And this is confirmed by the text where we see the ascended Christ giving Word gifts to His church. Among the purposes of the pastor-teacher, and you recall that I argued it's not pastor and teacher, but should be translated pastor-teacher, the pastor who is a teacher, among the purposes of the pastor-teacher is to help the church to, to develop the ability to resist false teaching. You know, John Calvin said in the Protestant Reformation that if Roman Catholicism had simply acknowledged the principle of sola scriptura, scripture alone, then all of the issues could have been settled. But of course they did not, and their error proliferated, and the result of that were the Protestant churches. Well, verse 14, I think, is the verse that we're going to focus a good deal on in this sermon, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How do we resist the power of error? I'm sure that we can all see that error is a very great power and very destructive and also can be very attractive. So how do we resist, as believers in Jesus, the attraction and the power of deceitful error? Well, this text tells us three ways. The first is, and I'm somewhat repetitive of some things said last week by necessity, the first way that we resist error is by reverencing the Word of God. By reverencing the Word of God, and especially the place of the preached Word is underscored here by the term pastor-teacher. The ascended Christ has given to his church pastor-teachers. The emphasis then is on word gifts. Some of them were temporary. There are no more apostles. There are no more prophets. They were foundational, and we are building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But the pastor-teacher is permanent until Christ comes again. And the whole point of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, is that the apostles are going away and those that remain to carry on apostolic ministry of preaching and teaching are the pastor teachers. God is concerned with order, the place of office in his church. God is concerned with order in any situation. He is concerned with order in his created world. He is concerned with order in the home. He is concerned with order in the church and order in our personal lives. God is not the author of confusion. So we have here this emphasis upon the pastor-teacher, as we see in verse 11, that has been given to the church for the perfection of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ and so that we will be led away from false teaching and led to the truth. Now let's think about this pastoral call for a few moments by looking at a few other passages. If you'll turn with me to the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, you will remember that in Acts chapter 6 we have the establishment of the first deacons. 
It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, now look at this in verse 2, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They did this. The unity of the church was extended and maintained. And we find in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now when the apostles said, we've got a problem here and we aren't going to, we're, we're not going to leave the ministry of prayer and of the word to minister to tables, they were not being arrogant. They were saying, this is our calling in the church. These are our gifts. We need, therefore, to look for others in the church who have this gift to minister in this situation to these people. And that's where the diaconate comes from in the New Testament. So you see, the apostles gave themselves over to the ministry of prayer and the Word of God. Well, the apostles are no longer. But Paul tells us, tells Timothy, and through him tells us, that what continues in the church is that ministry of the Word. And so if we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, picking up the reading in verse 11, 1 Timothy 4 verse 11, the apostle says to young Timothy, his protege, command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these things, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, Paul says, there is the pastor teacher who is to watch closely his life and his doctrine and is to devote himself to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Now turning to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He begins in verse 1 with a charge to his young protege, Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now turning back to Ephesians 4. When the ascended Christ gave the gift of pastor-teacher to the church. His calling is to give himself, to devote himself completely to the task of studying the Word, prayer, and proclaiming the Word publicly and privately. That's the work 
of the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the unity of the church is built largely around that proclamation of the word, its application to our lives, and our practicing of that word in the word, uh, in the lives that God has called us to live. You know, the Reformed faith has historically had the very highest view of the ministerial call. One of the saddest things to me is the way in which that call has been denigrated in the church and, of course, in our society. Uh, If you study the life of John Calvin, uh, you see a man who was almost superhuman in his constancy in studying the scriptures preaching, teaching, engaging in theological controversy for the glory of God. It is an incredible story. A man constantly sick, constantly ill, constantly pouring out the ministry of the Word upon God's people. You know, we're just jars of clay, we ministers. We're crackpots, really. But we're pouring out treasures of gold upon you when we expound the Scriptures. Is it always going to be an exciting thing? Well, in a way, but you know, some scripture is not always initially exciting. But I like what old John Murray said, that the exegete's work sometimes is dry as dust, but then it's gold dust. So that's the minister's call. Why the word? Why does the Bible emphasize the place of the word proclaimed and read in the midst of God's people? Well, you know, all men know God on one level. Romans 1.18 tells us that. There really are no atheists and no agnostics deep down within the heart. It shows in a variety of ways. I've never known anyone who would refuse to pray when the airplane is plunging. But the knowledge that we have of God because we are sinners is idolatrous knowledge. The need of the Word is to give us a true and accurate knowledge of God and of ourselves and of the knowledge of God, the Redeemer. So I have this fellow that says to me, I don't have to come to worship to hear this. I can just go out in nature and worship God. Well, you ask the mountains and the streams and the hills and the grass and the cows, what am I going to do about my sin problem? What am I going to do about my guilt? And nature clams up. It has no answer. We have to come to this word for this, that we may understand the truth of God, the Redeemer. And the knowledge that we have of God, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, opening our hearts to receive His word, is an idolatrous knowledge. So this puts the whole matter of pastor-teacher in the broader context of God's plan of salvation until Christ returns. God's people live under the Word of God until Christ comes again. Now notice again that the Apostle Paul is saying the pastor-teacher then is one who is concerned to help the church oppose, resist error. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be Children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the only way that you can know God, who He is, who we are, why we're here, and what God's world around us means is by means of His Word that is opened and expounded. Otherwise, we fall into egregious error. 
There's a, a child evangelism organization that's come under fire in a northeastern city because when it has had its backyard Bible clubs and so forth, it's teaching children that they are sinners in need of a savior. Some people in the community think that this is a horrible thing to say to children. It's going to tear down their self-esteem when you tell them that they are, that they are sinners. And so this large group of opposition has arisen in this city. They now have a web page, and you can go to that page, and you can see a child holding a sign that says, I am not a sinner. You know, how can a parent have a child and not know that that child is a sinner? (laughs) That's how we suppress the truth, you know? Setting apart God's word for all of life is intellectual and moral suicide. We know nothing We know truths, but we have no systemic idea of truth apart from this word in which God has revealed himself. And in the church, what happens when we set aside the word is that something else fills the space that becomes authoritative and unifying. So in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, when liberalism began to take over the major denominations, liberalism came up with the slogan, doctrine divides and service unites. Let's set aside all this concern about the Bible and teaching and doctrine, and let's just get out there and serve the world, and that will unite us. But that's not true. The church is not a social service organization, but people of God united around God's truth. Others say, let's just minimize doctrinal issues and then get together around the bare minimum. But contrary to what these folk hold, this does not promote unity but it destroys unity. Let me illustrate this to you. Let's say that I had a long table in the the front of this nave, and on that table I'm placing the great confessions of faith, the creeds and confessions. So we have the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and later on the Athanasian Creed. And then uh, perhaps we have the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort. We have the 39 Articles, the Anglican Articles. Um, And then we come up, finally, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now let me tell you something. What holds those confessions together is a belief in this book. So when you come to all of these great creeds and confessions, let's take a highlighter and let's mark the differences between them. Do you know that in all of those confessions, and we could put more on the table, actually Reformed confessions have been printed in four large volumes. We could put all of those confessions written at different time frames in different settings, but with a commitment to Christ alone, grace alone, the Word of God alone, and we take a highlighter and let's say, let's mark the differences. Do you know there would be very little to highlight? Almost nothing. Well, let's go a little farther afield and uh, let's take uh, the Baptists. So we add to the table the Baptist Confession of 1689. Well, we have a few things that we highlight. But we would still have page after page after page after page with no mark whatsoever. All right, let's go a little farther afield. Let's go to the Lutherans. Let's put the Lutheran Augsburg Confession on the table. Yeah, we would highlight a few more things that have been highlighted before. Almost nothing until we get to the Baptist, then a few things. Augsburg, yeah, we highlight some things. But still, page after page after page with no mark at all. Do you see the point? 
These are confessions that don't say, let's minimize doctrine. They maximize it. There is a system of doctrine contained within the Holy Scriptures. God has revealed Himself truly. We can discern what that teaching is. And we can be unified around the Word of God. But when the churches get away from sola scriptura, Scripture alone, and the belief that the Bible contains the system of doctrine, unity is destroyed. Unity is not disturbed by stressing doctrinal truth, but by a disinterest in doctrinal truth. And when sola scriptura goes, everything goes. All these little independent outfits then begin to develop and say, let's just be the New Testament church. Let's not have any creed. Don't you believe it? They have a creed. They have a creed, usually a very poor one, that doesn't give a hoot about how the Holy Spirit has led the church in doctrinal unity as seen in the great confessions of the church. So people of God, we will overcome error by reverencing the Word of God and looking for the maximum in our understanding of the truth, not the minimum. How then do we overcome error? We overcome error by reverencing the Word of God read and proclaimed. Second thing, How do we overcome error? Well, by understanding the power of error. We overcome error. By knowing our enemy, so to speak. So again, look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Belief in the truth is something that is just contrary to the spirit of the age. We must be tolerant and always positive, we're told. There's no place for controversy or condemnation unless you're an evangelical Christian and then there's plenty of condemnation for you. The truth is at stake in the world and in the church today. You know, the colophon that was placed on Calvin's books when they were published, that is to say the mark the publisher put on them, was a sword. Today, someone said, the church's books might have for its colophon, a feather duster. (laughs) An essential aspect of the unity of the church, one aspect of promoting it, is protection against error. And it's amazing to me how overlooked this is, despite the fact that the Bible is explicit about it. And that's because of this modern attitude that unity should be promoted by finding the least common denominator. We're not called, friends, We are not called to overlook doctrinal differences, but to work together for a biblical understanding of truth. Now, I want to underscore this fact. Remember that Paul has told us that the church is built on the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? It means we're built upon the truth, upon the inspiration of the Bible, ultimately. And this stands in sharpest contrast to modern liberalism that says there are many ways to the truth and mission of the church. The mission of the church is to join religion wherever it may be found, as one of them says, to join with all who dance to the tune of faith. And often it's coupled with overt dishonesty. One of my professors, Edmund Clowney, when he was a student at Yale under a well-known theologian, that, uh, that theologian said to the class, at that point the northern church still had the Westminster Confession of Faith as its confession, though they no longer believed it. And uh, this, this um, 
professor said to the young men in his class, you know, the Presbyterian church is a great church in which to minister. The only problem is you have to lie to get in. And that's exactly what they did. Man after man after man after man subscribed to a confession of faith that he did not believe. It's dishonesty. The charismatics come along and they would have us uh, unite largely around experience. But what's most disconcerting is that this attitude, this, this attitude that we aren't really concerned with truth today has influenced the church and we are capitulating. In some instances, it's gone so far that the church is looked at as a total tolerance society. Bart is praised. The doctrine of justification is compromised. Women are ordained to office. Communion is open to unbelievers. The Bible is not considered inerrant. The law has no place, we're told, in the Christian life. And the result is that practical godliness is seen less and less the more tolerant we become. Now, you know what I mean by tolerance. Surely we are to be gracious to those who differ from us. But I'm talking about the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No compromise. And there's compromise in the Christian camp, what Machen called deadly, menacing, deceptive peace. And the greatest enemy, my friend, within the church is inclusivism, which in the end is unloving because... Falsehood is never loving. It is never loving to say there is no hell when the Bible says there there is. It is not loving to say to a man, you can can follow uh, Confucius and be saved when Jesus says you can't. You're not loving when you do this. And if we're going to have a real impact on the world, we must repeal the paper currency in the church and go back to the gold standard of God's word. J.C. Ryle put it this way, I fear much for many professing Christians. I see no sign of fighting in them, much less of victory. They never strike one stroke on the side of Christ. They are at peace with his enemies. They have no quarrel with sin. I warn you, this is not Christianity. This is not the way to heaven. So look at verse 14 again. Yes, I am reading it many times on purpose so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It matters what you believe. Ideas have consequences. Doctrine is important. Think of the book of Galatians. Paul says, if you trust the wrong Christ and do not believe his gospel, then you'll be lost forever. B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton professor, when Princeton was the bastion of the Reformed faith, used to lean over his lectern when he was lecturing to the students and he'd point his finger and he'd say, boys, bad theology comes from a bad heart. And he's right. Now in this verse, verse 14, the Apostle Paul uses a Greek term, kubea. And kubea means dice playing. Craftiness or cunning is the way it's translated. It means wicked dice playing. It means fraud. Because there's much deception in these games. Combined with another word here, which means to track down, we conclude that the Apostle Paul is speaking of a deception which entraps. So we're talking about serious things here. A deception which entraps. And that's the power of error. Do you understand that you and I as believers in Jesus 
must have a heart that loves the truth, that seeks the truth, that loves his word, or we will be entrapped in deceitful, cunning, fraudulent error. How many times have I said this to you? Let me say it again. Good old-fashioned rat poison is 99% cornmeal. It's the 1% arsenic that kills the rat. Error is always a parody of the truth. That's why cults are successful in deceiving people. Because there are many truths that they speak, but they do not speak the truth. At minimum, according to verse 14, error will make a child of you. It will keep you a baby, making you sure of nothing or causing you to embrace wrong things. Look at a couple of passages. Just keep your finger here. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Context is worship. The gifts of the Spirit. And he says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 14 Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Now let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We see the writer of Hebrews is concerned with the same thing. If you think the book of Hebrews is deep, well really the writer of Hebrews says, well, I'm really just bringing you some basic things. That's all you can handle. He says in Hebrews 5.11, about this we have much to say. This is Hebrews 5.11. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It takes constant practice, applying the word, to distinguish good from evil. So listen, if you are a child in the Christian faith because you have recently become a believer in Jesus, that's great. It's fine. We have our little babies, and it's wonderful that we have our little babies. They should be little babies. They were born infants. But they shouldn't stay infants, and they shouldn't stay children, either in their bodies or in their thoughts or their emotions, affections, their will, their soul, they should grow up, they should mature. Now that's, that's Paul's point here. He says in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves. You're going to be a child if you don't get into the Word. Grow up, Paul is saying. Submit yourself to the Word proclaimed. Get into the Word yourself and read and study it so that you will not be children, or you will not be rudderless with the wind coming and blowing you wherever it will. God calls you and me to mature, correct, 
biblical thinking. Otherwise, we're like reeds shaken in the wind. And God calls you to be thoroughly grounded in the Scriptures. But what do you do about it? You give yourself over to prayer before coming to worship, preparation before coming to worship. You give yourself over to the study of the Word during the week. We have three opportunities as a norm for you to hear the Word proclaimed here every week. You want to grow up? Apply yourself to the means that God says will grow you up. It's pretty simple. You want to grow up? Eat the right food. Eat well. Eat healthily. Don't skip meals. Well, let's go on. We're answering the question, how do we resist the attraction of error? Let me give you one more thing, and that is by growing in the truth. I could have said by growing in grace, but call it what you will, verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4. Let's look at it. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, see the word, grow up, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The ultimate goal is full and complete maturity in heaven. Between now and then, there is a growth process. The unity is promoted because the unity of the church is the theme of the passage. The unity is promoted by receiving the word preached, using your gifts in service to one another, and by having a passion for the truth. And Paul states it positively in verse 15 when he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Speaking the truth in love. We grow together when we speak God's truth to one another lovingly. Error is evil. Doctrinal error can never be harmless. But we also must see that a formal theoretical orthodoxy does not imply holiness of life. Our orthodoxy must be characterized by a life manifesting the truth in love. So when he says speaking the truth in love here, he uses the word aletheuane, which doesn't simply mean speaking it, but living it. Literally, it means be honest. We need to be honest. We need doctrinal truth. We need to take it seriously. But if it does not affect our practice, we are not taking it seriously. And Paul is saying, you take this word that is proclaimed by the pastor teacher. That will keep you from error. That will draw you to the truth if you speak it in love. That is to say, if you're honest, honest in your heart and honest with one another about the truth. Maybe there's someone you know that's in error and you need to be honest with them. Someone who's fallen into a grievous sin and you haven't been honest with them. You've not spoken the truth in love. Or maybe you've said true things but you haven't said lovingly. Paul says these belong together. So when a man says, I know the teaching of God's word. The Bible says that I'm to be the head of my home. All right? The Bible teaches that. But then he doesn't love his wife. He doesn't discipline his children. That's a man who is theoretically orthodox, but he doesn't understand the doctrine at all because he hasn't applied it to his own heart and he doesn't know how to live it out. The man that does not love his wife and discipline his children is not taking the doctrine of headship in the home seriously no matter what he says. 
Now Paul says as we do this, we'll be growing up in all things into him who is the head in verse 15. Now let's look at the words again. This is really thick language. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now the metaphor might seem very strange to us, but the idea is not what people think it is. Paul is not saying we are to grow up into Christ the head, and Christ is the head, and the church, the body, is the torso. That's not what Paul means. These in Paul are two distinct and separate metaphors that he uses. In 1 Corinthians, he uses parts of the head as a part of the body. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says the husband is the head of the wife, his body. Well, the husband is not the head and the wife the torso. They are distinct metaphors. The husband is the head, that is to say, he is the, the leader, and the wife is his body that he is to love. Distinct and separate metaphors. Head means sovereign director, just as the husband is the head of the wife. So what Paul is saying is this. It's just simple. You will grow as a church in unity. And as a, an individual member of the church, you will grow as you are dependent on Christ's leadership. And how does he lead? Right here, through his word. No more dreams, no more visions, not tongues, not prophecy. We have a word, a complete and final word. So Hendrickson puts it this way, it's rather lovely. Just as the human body, when held together by every supporting joint, grows strong, so also the church, when it receives the active support of every member, each cooperating according to his ability, will be built up in love. So did you see this? If you want to promote the unity of the body as you're called to do, verse 16 says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow up that it builds itself up in love. The idea is you take in the word, you apply it to your life, you love your brother and sister next to you, and you use those gifts that God has given you to serve them, and then we'll have a unified body. Right? So are you using your gifts? Don't be down on somebody if you don't see them using their gifts, because their gifts may be very quiet. It may be in the closet, praying. They have a special gift of prayer nobody sees but God. Maybe a gift of coming alongside someone lovingly and quietly and encouraging. For somebody else, it may be teaching in the church and everybody can see it. doesn't matter. The point is, you love Christ and love this body and get involved by using your gifts. Don't just hang on the edges. The Bible just doesn't encourage anything like that. Well, I need to bring it to a conclusion, I guess. I had five more things to say. <laughs> Listen, let me just say it this way. You've got to love the truth. You've got to love the truth. You can't just be passive here. Again, you can't throw your mind in the bushes when you walk into worship and just be passive. You've got to love the truth so that it begins to control your thoughts and your actions, your affections, change you, transform you. 
The larger catechism says in question 160, what is required of those who hear the word preached? Answer, it is required of those who hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. Michael Aiken reminded me of a passage in the Pilgrim's Progress in personal conversation last Sunday. I went and reread it, and I want to read it to you. The Pilgrim's Progress. This is where Christian is on his way to the heavenly city, to Zion. And he, um, he comes across Apollyon. He comes across the devil. Now, it's page after page here. It's just great. I won't read it all. But... Um, Young people, children, he describes Apollyon when he met him this way. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire, smoke, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion. And when he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance, and thus began to question him. And the evil one begins to accuse him. And he points out to Christian that he's a sinner and he's failed. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. But he said, "Um, my prince is a forgiving prince and he forgives. Well, that so enrages Apollyon. Then Apollyon broke out into a grievous rage saying, I am an enemy to this prince, an enemy to the Lord. I hate his person, his laws, his people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee, Christian. Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness, therefore take heed to yourself, Apollyon. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. The way is capitalized. The whole breadth of the way, and said, I am void of fear in this matter, prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no further. Here I will spill thy soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at his breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand with which he caught it and prevented the danger of that. We're going to read this again when we get to chapter (laughs) 6. Then did Christian draw, for he saw it was time to bestir him. He drew. And Apollyon, as fast made at him, throwing darts as thick as hail, by the which, notwithstanding all that Christian could do to avoid it. Apollyon wounded him in his head, his hand, his foot. This made Christian give a little back. Apollyon, therefore, followed his work amain, and Christian again took courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This sore combat lasted for above half a day, even till Christian was almost quite spent. For you must know that Christian, by reason of his wounds, must needs grow weaker and weaker. Then Apollyon, espying his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian, and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. What's his sword? It's the word. I'm tempted to stop and say, go read it for yourself, find out what happens. No, I won't. 
The sword flew out of his hand. Ever happened to you? Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. Get it? And with that, he had almost pressed him to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon wings and sped him away, that Christian saw him no more. In this combat, no man can imagine, unless he had seen and heard it as I did, what yelling and hideous roaring Apollyon made all the time of the fight. He spake like a dragon, and on the other side what sighs and groans burst from Christian's heart. I never saw him all the while give so much as one pleasant look, till he perceived he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. Then indeed did he smile and look forward, but it was the dreadfulest fight that I ever saw. The evil one is out to destroy your soul, he is out to destroy this church, he is, to, he is out to destroy the proclamation of truth in the world. He will raise up ISIS. But the Lord is still in control. But there's one thing for sure. Apollyon is all over you when you lose your sword. Some of you have dropped your sword. You're not even reading the Word. You're here infrequently to hear the Word proclaimed. You don't take advantage of the means of grace that are offered. You need your two-edged sword. And this is the way that the Lord has given for His people. Do you know why? Every Sunday morning, I come out, and the first thing I do is to open the Bible on the pulpit. Because it says to us, we are a people on the way, living under the authority of this word until Jesus comes again. Folks, get your sword, learn your sword, learn your weapon, learn how to use it. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.